Hot Mess. Sponsored by Mason Hazen Curran, experts in renewable energy. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash energy 22. This meeting is now adjourned. I now declare the conference closed. In the early hours of yesterday morning, the Egyptian foreign minister brought down the gavel on this year's global climate summit, COP27. You've heard the headlines about an historic deal on financial support for vulnerable countries, but you may have missed the detail on failed efforts to actually reduce climate change. I'm Philip Boucher Hayes. This is Hot Mess. Episode 14, Good Cop, Bad Cop. What was and wasn't agreed in Sharm el-Sheikh. The clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising and our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Daisy, after two weeks of COP27, does what the Secretary-General of the United Nations said at the outset still hold? Do we still have our foot flat on the accelerator on this highway to hell? Yes, I think I would agree with the metaphor. I think if you look at the world's use of fossil fuels, it's expected to keep increasing. And, you know, lots of countries still have plans for new oil and gas expansion. Coal power isn't going down anytime soon. And so our emissions are going to keep increasing the next few years. Daisy Dunn is the special correspondent for Carbon Brief. That's a website that provides excellent clear-headed analysis of global climate issues. Daisy was in Sharm el-Sheikh for the duration of COP27 and spoke to me this morning from Cairo. And the difficult thing about a COP is it's not like it can change the global picture overnight. It's not like all the leaders can sit down and agree to, you know, change the course of their fossil fuel use tomorrow. But it does seem like, unfortunately, we haven't had that level of progress to take our foot off the accelerator. Let's start, perhaps, Daisy, though, with the good news and the announcement of this loss and damage fund. Pakistan was chosen at the end of the conference to make a closing statement on behalf of the group of 77 lesser developed countries, presumably because its present situation highlights how badly a global fund for climate-related loss and damage is actually needed. The catastrophic floods in Pakistan that impacted 33 million people and resulted in losses and damages of over 30 million billion dollars. Mr. President, you promised us an implementation COP and you delivered an implementation COP. So our congratulations to you and to all of us. The establishment of a fund is not about dispensing charity. It is clearly a down payment on the longer investment in our joint futures. It is a down payment and an investment in climate justice. Daisy, why does the world need a loss and damage fund? For 30 years at UN climate talks and in these kind of arenas, developing countries have called 
for a loss and damage money, a loss and damage fund. And that's basically because they're already experiencing very severe impacts from climate change, whether that be, you know, more severe extreme weather events or in the case of small islands, sea level rise taking their land, you know, year after year. And they're bearing the cost of that themselves at the moment. You know, the cost already exists. The argument is if we've caused the, you know, we haven't caused this problem, we're bearing the cost for it. It actually should be the nations that have historically caused the most climate change that should pay for it. Um, And I think obviously 30 years, not much progress has been made, but as climate change impacts worsen, and we're seeing really severe extreme events around the world from the floods in Pakistan to the floods in Nigeria recently, I think it's become impossible to ignore. Um, And that's why we've kind of seen this really historic breakthrough. How did this happen, though? Because the United States, the EU in particular, have resisted the creation of a loss and damage fund for decades now. What was different at COP27? The EU and the US, it's interesting to see how their kind of position has changed because, as you mentioned, they have uh, historically been seen to block conversations about loss and damage fund. And and I think you did see them attempt to do that here at COP27, but it's become more difficult for them in the face of, you know, growing climate impacts, it's become more difficult for the EU in particular to um, justify blocking these funds. And we saw the EU kind of it's coming into COP on the defensive, claiming that they, they're not against helping vulnerable countries and they know that it's the right thing to do. Um, and then when we entered the second week of the talks, we saw the EU kind of come up with their own compromise for loss and damage finance and, and kind of assure developing countries that they want to work with them on this. Zambia made a closing statement on behalf of the African group of nations in a way that ended up highlighting how many countries that there are that are going to be looking to this fund for support in coming years. Mr. President, we came to Sham El Sheikh to advance implementation of climate actions and to address the escalating climate emergency affecting millions of vulnerable people, especially in Africa and other developing countries, and to restore hope and climate justice to those who suffer the most and who have contributed the least to the problem. We believe that the adoption of the decisions here today, some ray of hope may shine on our planet. It is our expectation that through the commitment and action of the weights, the burden of the poorest may be minimized. There's so many questions to be answered here, Daisy. Like, who is actually the most vulnerable? Who's going to be able to claim from this fund? Who is going to fund it? How much are they going to be expected to put into it? How is it going to be administered? Have any of these questions been answered? Yeah, I think you're right to say that. I think there's so many question marks on all these things so the final loss and damage text says that um it kind of specified that particularly vulnerable countries would benefit from this fund but under kind of un speak that is open to any developing country so any country that's not considered a developed economy by the un which you know includes the petro states includes uh, major emerging economies as well as the most vulnerable the small islands the african um countries so, yeah, it's, there's still no clarity on, on that. But at, as it stands at the moment, mm. anyone who isn't a developed country could receive funds um, under what so has been agreed. So does that theoretically in- mean that Saudi Arabia could claim from the loss and damage fund? Yes, it does um, from what we've got at the moment. But it's very, it's possible that, you know, this will be further negotiated on and tightened up. Um, and also, I guess it's worth pointing out that Saudi Arabia is 
eligible to receive climate finance um, in other forums, but doesn't really take that much. So it's it's not historically uh, used its position as a developing nation in the UN forum to like take climate finance. Let's move on a little bit from looking exclusively at loss and damage, because the EU's representative, Franz Timmerman, uh, while welcoming the loss and damage initiative, didn't hold back in highlighting how this COP had been a failure in terms of doing more to reduce emissions. And friends are only friends if they also tell you things you might not want to hear. This is the make or break decade. But what we have in front of us is not enough of a step forward for people and planet. It does not bring enough added efforts from major emitters to increase and accelerate their emissions cuts. It does not bring a higher degree of confidence that we will achieve the commitments made under the Paris Agreement and in Glasgow last year. It does not address the yawning gap between climate science and our climate policies. The European Union tried to bridge these gaps. As you know, we showed our commitment to ambition by being fully in line with a 1.5 scenario and even being able to update our NDC. We tried to get us all on a firm path to 1.5, with a global emissions peak by 2025 and with a clear statement of our intention to phase out unabated fossil fuels. We've heard this week that more than 80 countries, 80 countries now support this goal. Sadly, we don't see this reflected here. The mitigation work program doesn't block the path to 1.5, but it certainly puts unnecessary barriers in the way and allows parties to hide from their responsibilities. But we will not stop fighting for more, and nothing prevents us from doing more. We will be holding ourselves and everyone here accountable under the Paris Agreement. But last night, our talks have stalled. Many parties, too many parties, are not ready to make more progress today in the fight against the climate crisis. There were too many attempts to even roll back what we agreed in Glasgow. Some are afraid of the transition ahead, of the cost of change. They question the how, not the why. I understand those concerns. Many Europeans share them. But I want to ask you all, colleagues here in the room, to find the courage to overcome that fear. Let's talk first off about these attempts to roll back what was agreed at Glasgow. Somewhat incredibly, there are still people, still countries rather, attending this conference that are trying to unpick or undermine 1.5 degrees as a target or a limit. Yes, that's correct. So there are countries, big oil and gas producers, who you could argue, I suppose, are trying to cast their own interests that have historically tried to block and undo um, action to meet the 1.5 goal, which requires tougher emissions cuts of this decade. With 80 countries now, as he says, supporting the phasing out of unabated fossil fuel consumption, but that isn't what ended up being agreed upon in the final statement yesterday. How far did this COP get on fossil fuels? So it was really interesting to see the kind of fossil fuel conversation take place at COP. So we heard earlier on, relatively early on, a call from India to include um, a phasing down of fossil fuels uh, in the final cover text, the final decision from Sharm el-Sheikh. And it did receive the support of a lot of countries, as we heard there from Franz Timmermans. So the US backed it, big oil and gas producer, um, lots of other developed nations backed it, and also 
the most vulnerable nations backed it too. But we never saw it appear in any of the draft versions of the Sharm el-Sheikh agreement, which is interesting um, and maybe says something about the Egyptian presidency's role in all of this, um, as some people have speculated. And yeah, when we got to the final few hours of um, trying to agree on the Sharm el-Sheikh agreement, we really saw divisions between petro states and major emerging economies and the rest of the world kind of come into their own. So there was a lot of kind of last minute drama on that. And then in the final agreement, of course, we don't have a mention of it, which shows that they these blocking countries were successful in this instance. Now, the big thing that was supposed to happen at this COP was something that had been set, a task that had been set, if you like, at the end of the Glasgow COP. The 200 countries of the world were supposed to meet in Sharm el-Sheikh with renewed, updated, enhanced ambitions for uh, the carbon cuts that they were going to introduce in their own economies. Franz Timmermans said there that the EU came to COP with updated ambitions. I thought that it was the case that only 24 countries or so had actually done that and that the EU wasn't one of them. Yes, that's right. So the EU hasn't formally updated its NDC. It's basically um, announced its intentions to update its NDC, to raising it from 55% emissions cuts by 2030 to 57%. Um, and they've basically said that it's not going to be like an EU legal requirement, but because they're they're kind of above and beyond their own plans for 55, they think they're going to be able to get to 57 and they plan to update their NDC with that information. But it hasn't been formally submitted yet. So, yeah, we, we definitely haven't seen the level of progress that we were hoping for at the end of Glasgow to get national plans in line with 1.5 or, you know, even two degrees. So just how far away are we from failing to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees? More from COP27 after this break. Hot Mess, sponsored by Mason Hayes and Curran, your ESG legal experts in Ireland. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash ESG22. COP27 was, as Daisy Dunn has been telling us, simultaneously good cop, and bad cop. Historic breakthrough on the idea that wealthy countries should pay for the climate damage inflicted on the less well-off, but a very poor effort on actually stemming the damage, even from preventing its increase. The closing statement of the United Kingdom, made by last year's president of the COP, Alok Sharma, perhaps best summed up what had and hadn't been achieved. But I want to begin by recognising the progress on loss and damage. This is historic. The decision that we have taken here has the potential to support and increase that support for the most vulnerable, and I very much welcome that. And the scale and the range of needs will require contributions from the widest range of sources and parties. Of course, the critical work now lies ahead to ensure that potential is realized. But friends, and I have to say this, this is not a moment of unqualified celebration. Many of us came here to safeguard the outcomes that we secured in Glasgow and to go further still. In our attempt to do that, we've had a series of very challenging conversations over the past few days. Indeed, those of us who came to Egypt to keep 1.5 degrees alive and to respect what every single one of us agreed to in Glasgow have had to fight relentlessly to hold the line. We've had to battle 
to build on one of the key achievements of Glasgow, the call on all parties to revisit and strengthen their nationally determined contributions. We have ultimately reiterated that call here. And it is critical that commitment is delivered by all of us, including by the major emitters in this room who did not come forward this year. But we also wanted to take definitive steps forward. We joined with many parties to propose a number of measures that would have contributed to this. Emissions peaking before 2025, as the science tells us, is necessary. Not in this text. Clear follow-through on the phase-down of coal. Not in this text. A clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels. Not in this text. And the energy text weakened in the final minutes. Friends, I said in Glasgow that the pulse of 1.5 degrees was weak. Unfortunately, it remains on life support. Let's talk about those things that he referred to there as not being in the text, uh, particularly this idea that was set out in the IPCC reports, Daisy, that emissions must peak and start coming down by 2025 if 1.5 is to remain a goal. Why do you think it was so hard for the 200 countries to accept the scientific reality of that? It's true. It's definitely very true that, you know, if the IPCC is saying we need to do this, then it is the reality that all countries should be listening to. And all countries, you know, have signed off the IPCC reports, which should, which suggests, you know, that they should already be on board with these messages, these messages from the IPCC. But I think what happened was there's some major uh, emerging economies have pushed back against further ambition and the reason being that they argue it's not in their national interest that they want to pursue development that kind of thing um so that's why we haven't seen that language getting in there because it did have support from you know the least developed countries small islands even the us the uk um so i think yeah it's fair to say that it's the it's the major emerging economies and the kind of petro states that push back on that one we got an insight into that from the closing speech from India, who said quite bluntly, look, as a developing nation, we think that we should be free to continue to develop in the way that we want in both our agriculture and our energy choices, and that all of these things should be unburdened by the need for any kind of climate action. That is something that we think should fall on the shoulders of richer nations. We note that we are establishing a four-year work program on climate action in agriculture and food security. Agriculture, the mainstay of livelihood of millions of smallholder farmers, will be hard hit from climate change. So we should not burden them with mitigation responsibilities. Indeed, India has kept mitigation in agriculture out of its indices. We are also establishing a work program on just transition. For most developing countries, just transition cannot be equated with decarbonization, but with low carbon development. Developing countries need independence in their choice of energy mix and in achieving the SDGs. Developed countries taking the lead in climate action is therefore a very important aspect of the global just transition. Thank you, Mr. President. Politely and diplomatically done, but basically they're saying, that's it, you got as much out of us as you're going to get. I think I would say, as a kind of where these countries are coming from, there's something that hangs over these talks, and that is 
a kind of failed promise from developed countries to deliver on providing 100 billion in climate finance um, by 2020. So that, you know, that was missed considerably when the 2020 deadline arrived. And so it's kind of created this atmosphere where developing nations are very mistrustful and they're very skeptical of developed nations. And they're saying, you keep, you know, you're asking us for these new commitments to cutting our own emissions, but you're not providing the funds that you promised you would give us to help us do that. Um, so I think the failure to deliver on 100 billion hangs over the talks and makes things much more kind of tense and sees these major emerging economies be more defensive than they might have been otherwise. And that really is at the door or developed countries that haven't delivered on the 100 billion and you know st- and still aren't close to delivering on that indeed we got an absolutely fascinating insight into how developing countries feel that they have been treated by the richer nations from the bolivians at the very end of the conference it's worth listening to that contribution almost in its entirety we are very concerned that developed countries do not see the means of implementation for developing countries as a constituent part of the goal. Over the years, we have seen efforts by our partners to erode the basic principles of equity and CBDR in the decisions. However, we were rather taken aback by our partners' approach this time around. We have been given the impression that it is unfashionable to talk about equity and CBDR. In every negotiating room, equity has been questioned and efforts were made to dilute CBDR. At the 30th anniversary of the convention, our partners raised questions around the meaning of equity, objected to its reference in decisions texts, trying to expand donor-based and shift their finance support obligations to the private sector and developing countries. We have also heard a lot about saving the planet, its people's ambition, 1.5 degrees, but the words do not match actions. All we have are unambitions, inequitable net zero by 2050 targets, which will not get us to the 1.5 degrees. Further, there are unfulfilled commitments of $100 billion per year and unfulfilled pledges to the Green Climate Fund and Adaptation Fund. But these are lost in the din of optics and applause, Mr. President. The din of optics and applause. And that was a contribution that was made, Daisy, on behalf of the Like-Minded Developing Countries Group which represents 50% of the global population. It doesn't really paint a picture, does it, of a world in which everybody's moving in the same direction? Yes, I think you're right. It's, it's very interesting to hear all of that because I think it does really demonstrate the division between developing and developed nations. And I think so much of it does go back to the failed promise to deliver on the $100 billion in climate finance um, from developed countries. It, yeah, if you look at the COP from an outsider perspective, you might say, oh, well, you know, the EU and the UK and the US are calling for 1.5 to be kept alive. And there are major emerging economies that are blocking this. But you really have to think about it in the context of rich nations have done the most to cause climate change historically. 
and they're not giving their fair share of climate finance, especially the US, you know, carbon brief produced analysis before COP started showing that the US is falling, I think, 30 billion short of its fair share in climate finance. And so there's such a kind of atmosphere of mistrust and um, suspicion from developing nations. And, you know, these questions of equity, of fairness are going to keep coming up if, if finance pledges aren't delivered. And, you know, without those finance pledges being delivered, it's going to be really hard for the developed countries to get what they want in terms of keeping 1.5 alive, making sure we do what we can to limit global warming and all the terrible things that are going to happen if we don't. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting statement to end on. Where do you think we are on 1.5 as a limit? Scientifically, it's still possible. I think that's what I hear from speaking to climate scientists. So I I wouldn't agree with the argument, you know, that it's time to say goodbye to 1.5 or it's time to move past it or move on from it. I think it definitely, it's physically still like, you know, especially because if you think about what the IPC says about 1.5, there's there's a kind of, like you know, a fairly high chance that we'll, go beyond it, but we'll be able to get back down to 1.5 by the end of the century, um, which is the ambition of the Paris Agreement. But politically, obviously, it's very, very difficult, especially when you look at the COP and the division between developed and developing nations. Um, So we definitely need to see a big shift in how these COPs play out. We need to see climate finance um, pledges being fulfilled. We need to see more you know, positive cooperation between countries that have very different mindsets. Um, so it's really, really challenging. And it is, uh, you know, that's probably why people say that 1.5 is is dead because they see that political situation being so difficult. But, you know, there is still hope that we can do everything we can to turn things around. And that the science says it's still possible. So I think it's, it's definitely worth bearing that in mind. Daisy Dunn, Special Correspondent with CarbonBrief.org. You can follow Daisy online as well, at Daisy Dunn, Sci, S-C-I. Final word on this COP, though, goes to Tuvalu, a country which has recently taken the precaution of uploading itself to the metaverse to ensure its literal survival in some form or another. The contributions of this small island nation at COPS are always memorable. A press conference last year delivered by the Prime Minister standing up to his knees in seawater. This contribution, though, less gimmicky, but no less memorable. Friends, and you yourself, Mr President, has many a times last week and this week reminded us of the calamities, the devastation, lives being lost across the globe because of climate change and sea level rise. However, we haven't responded sufficiently to that call by raising ambition. And that is our deep regret and disappointment and it has made Shamo Sheik, regrettably, a missed opportunity for a truly successful COP. Hot mess. 
Sponsored by Mason Hazen Curran, a powerhouse in legal advice in Ireland. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash energy 22.